You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. There is this. Video occasionally gets passed around the internet. Maybe you've seen it. It's somebody at a bike race. They're bike racing, racing bikers. And he's approaching the finish line. Somebody's about to win this race. He's maybe 20 feet from the finish line and he begins to pump his fists in the air. Let's go of his handlebars, pumps his fists in the air in celebration and promptly topples off his bicycle and the person behind him wins the race. There's a very similar video of a snowboarder doing almost exactly the same thing. So close to the finish line, begins to celebrate, falls on her ass, and and the snowboarder behind her slaloms around her and wins the race. So I wanted to open today's show by saying, hey, you guys, congratulations. We got through 2017 in one piece, but there's actually five or six days left in 2017 that we have to get through, and we don't want any premature celebrating. We don't want to be that guy on the bike pumping his fists in the air or that woman on the snowboard prematurely celebrating her first place finish and then fall on our asses. We are in that week, that week between Christmas and New Year's where every day in that week feels like a Sunday, that weird sort of neither here nor there, not your day if you're not particularly faithful, not the Lord's day either, just a Sunday kind of day for seven days in a row. We're there. And when we get through that week of Sundays, we will be through 2017 and headed into 2018. It has been a long, difficult year. We have fought and fought. We have marched. We have screamed. We have yelled. We have called. We have prevented some terrible things from happening. We haven't been able to prevent every single terrible thing from happening. And along the way, we've still managed to have fun, smoke a little pot here and there. Get laid, hook up, break up, listen to my show, call into my show, and it's been great. You guys have helped me get through 2017, and we're all going to be here for each other. We're going to get through, hopefully with Robert Mueller's help, 2018 in one piece as well. We're recording the top of this week's show a little bit in advance because we are taking a holiday break. So if Robert Mueller has indicted everyone in the last couple of days, I'm sorry I haven't mentioned it, or if... Some wonderful thing has happened. I'm sorry I wasn't able to talk about that. Or some terrible thing has happened in the last few days. You'll have to wait till next week to hear me rant and rave about that. But for now, I just wanted to thank you guys for being here along for the ride with me for 2017. And I look forward to being with you and there for you in 2018. And we will get through the next year together just as we got through the last year together. All right, coming up on today's show, as ever, tons of your Q's, lots of my A's, and joining us on the Magnum and Micro Edition of the Savage Lovecast, we've got Luke Burbank from Livewire and Too Beautiful to Live here to field a few questions with me from the straight male perspective. All that on today's show. Hey, Dan. I have a work friend of mine who has been freaking out for the past couple of days because she found pornography in her husband's email. It's not a big deal for me or myself. I've been a longtime listener. And anyway, it's not about me. I don't know what advice to give her. She is have, she's breaking down during the day. She can't concentrate at work. 
she is feeling so betrayed and doesn't want him to ever look at porn ever again. So what can I tell her? You could tell her to get a dog. None of them look at porn. You could tell her to get a girlfriend. A lot less likely to look at porn. That's not a sure thing. No, there are plenty of women out there who watch pornography. You could tell her about this study in the UK where they wanted to compare the attitudes of men who watched porn with the attitudes of men who don't watch porn. And for the purpose of the study, they couldn't locate anybody, any men who didn't watch porn. So I know there's some rounding up here and we'll hear from a couple of guys who don't watch porn, but it's safe to say with a little rounding up that all men watch pornography. So what you need to tell your friend is get the fuck over it, that this is not a bug it's a feature and that if she allows this to destroy her marriage or if she leaves this man and takes up with someone else the chances that this someone else is also going to watch pornography are about 110 percent so she needs to get the fuck over it not for his sake for her own sake she just needs to accept that this is a thing that people do all men people lots of if not the vast majority of women people. It's a thing and non-binary people. It's a thing people do. Now, what do you do if you're in a relationship and one person would rather not be with someone who watches porn and one person would like to, like most people, watch a little porn now and then for their own purposes and their own use? The only really functional agreement is your partner pretends to not watch pornography and you pretend to believe them. They make an effort to cover their tracks, to keep it to a minimum, to delete their browser histories, to use incognito windows, Whatever, to keep it out of sight and therefore out of mind for their partner who's bothered by pornography. And then if the partner who watches a little porn now and then is doing their best to keep it to a minimum, to keep it out of sight, keep it out of mind, if the partner who doesn't want their partner watching porn occasionally, once in a very great while, stumbles over evidence, they repay the effort and kindness that their partner is showing them by turning a blind fucking eye to it. And then suspending their disbelief and pretending, telling themselves that their partner doesn't watch pornography. That is really the only solution here. Her partner pretends not to watch. She pretends to believe him. He makes the effort. She makes an effort herself on those occasions where he trips up and evidence is uncovered. If your friend is this upset about the pornography, clearly she needs to talk to someone besides you. If it's preventing her from working, that's a degree of upset that tips into crazy. She needs to talk to a therapist or a shrink or a counselor about what it is about this that is so devastating to her. A lot of people who complain to me about it, the first thing out of their mouths will be, it makes me feel like I'm not enough. Well, you're not, period, the end. Everyone is not enough. No two people are enough for each other in any way, particularly sexually. Consider how our erotic imaginations just take us anywhere. We can do anything in our erotic imaginations, and we do. And our partners, hopefully, are along for a lot of that ride, but they can't be along for all of it. It's just not possible. For her to be all things to him or him to be all things to her. She must have fantasies, passing thoughts, occasional crushes, the odd barista that she sees and thinks, yeah, if I were single, hmm. But yeah, he's not enough for her. She's not enough for him. But they are with each other and choose each other. And every once in a while, there's a supplemental fantasy or romance novel or a little bit of pornography that scratches those other itches, that meets those other needs that your partner is not capable of meeting and yet you love them anyway and stay with them anyway because they meet so many of your other needs because they're nearly enough for you but not of course enough because no two people are enough for each other but what do you do what do you do for your friend you can talk sense to her you can tell her the things that i just told you you can also push her to go see a therapist which is what i think she really needs
Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old female from Ohio who just became sexually active after this past year. Uh, I grew up in a religiously conservative evangelical family and was homeschooled and made the promise of abstinence until marriage when I was 13. I went to Bible college and became a missionary and then had an awful experience that caused me to leave the church and rethink my faith and my thoughts on sexuality. I'd always assumed that I was straight until I started developing feelings for my best friend, who was a woman. We talked about it and began a romantic relationship, which allowed us to experience and explore our sexualities for the first time with each other. About two months later, I met this awesome guy, and after talking it over with my girlfriend, he and I started going out. Both of them knew about each other, and they were okay with the relationship, but I wasn't. I broke up with my girlfriend two months after and moved in with my boyfriend four months later. My problem now, Dan, is that while I'm still attracted to him and I enjoy the sex that we have, uh, I still have a lot that I want to work out about my sexuality and have yet to reveal that to my family. I want to work out more things about my beliefs and, and heal some of my emotional wounds from the past. My boyfriend, who is three months older than me and a longtime listener of your show, has been incredibly patient and understanding and supportive of me throughout this process. I don't want to hurt him or make him wait around for me while I figure myself out. We've talked about this, and he has assured me that he's willing to take as much time as I need to make our relationship work. But I'm still so new to relationships, and I'm struggling with the guilt of being what feels to me so much further behind in relational maturity than him. Should I continue our relationship, or should I go off and find myself? If you need to get out of this relationship with your loving boyfriend to work through whatever it is that you need to work through, then you have my permission to get out of this relationship. And you don't necessarily, you don't absolutely, absolutely positively do not need his permission to get out of the relationship, to end it or suspend it if that's what you need to do. You don't need his consent. Really, in relationship land, in sex and romance land, the only thing where the other person's consent is irrelevant is termination, ending the relationship. You don't need their permission. You don't need their buy-in. You don't need their consent. That said, do you need to get out of this relationship to work through whatever it is you need to work through? You say you have a lot to work out about your sexuality. It sounds to me like your boyfriend would be fine with you working through those things while in the relationship still with him. You had, for a time, him as your boyfriend and a girlfriend simultaneously. You were out there experimenting with different relationship models, with different objects of your affection, different genders. And he didn't regard that as a problem. My question for you would be, do you regard that as a problem? Do you have hangups from your upbringing that tell you that it has to be one person at a time? Even if you're going to allow yourself to be queer or lesbian or bi, it has to be one person at a time, that a good person doesn't date more than one person at a time. And so to be with him, you had to let her go. And and is that something he imposed on you or is that a choice that you imposed on yourself or your upbringing, a zap on your head that your upbringing imposed on you? Once you determine what the answer to that question is, then you're in a better position to make a decision about what to do with the boyfriend you've got now. Continue on in the relationship with him while also continuing to explore your sexuality and getting to know yourself better or let him go. Exit the relationship. Tell him that there's things you need to learn about yourself and you really feel, honestly feel like you need to be single to learn those lessons. And you got to get out there in the world, not as half of a couple, not as a woman dating other women who's got a boyfriend at a home, but as a woman on her own. And that's completely legitimate if that's how you feel. And again, it might be sad that you're ending things 
when he doesn't want them to end. But again, you don't need his consent to end the relationship. If you want out, if you need to be single and unencumbered right now while you figure this shit out, be single and unencumbered. And this isn't a parting in anger. It doesn't have to be acrimony here. Some people, when they end a relationship, feel like unless there's anger and acrimony, they must generate that anger and acrimony to somehow cauterize the wound. Otherwise, why would you end the relationship if people weren't throwing pots and pans and furious and upset? And it's possible to end something from a place of sincere affection and sadness in recognizing that now is not the right time for you two to be together. That doesn't mean that if you can't stick this dismount, you might remount each other at some point in the future down the road. In a few years, if you know yourself better and know what you want and he's still single and still available and he is what you want, you can pick back up again. But I detect in your call just a desire for permission to end something that's good because it's not the time for you to be in this relationship. And you have my permission to end it, which you don't need. Also, you don't need his. Hey, Dan, and a tech-savvy at-risk youth. This is a question concerning kink and safety. Um, I recently moved to a part of the country where I know virtually no one. I was reached out to on Grinder by an attractive man who wanted to make me into a bondage sub. I've never been a sub or been bound, but I was interested. He has an active blog full of pictures of his work. We also met for coffee to get better acquainted, and he seemed very nice, intelligent, and sexy. No alarm bells went off in my head at all. We were planning on having me over for a session on this coming Thursday, but since our coffee date, I've been thinking about the fact that I would be completely physically incapacitated, as exampled by uh, the photos on his blog. Um, tonight, I was feeling concerned and informed them that should I be leaving I mean, that I would be leaving a trail to him should I not turn up where I'm supposed to be. He said that he has never been threatened like that by a potential sub and that he does not wish to even speak to me again. We've had a really good rapport to this point, and I was actually pretty interested in just becoming friends. The content of my message was that I'm preparing to take action. I'm preparing actions to be taken if I don't end up where I'm supposed to be Thursday night. He responded that my concerns are completely valid, but that the tenor of my remarks lead him to believe that I would not be fun to be with at all. This is completely fine. It's not going to happen. I'm absolutely aware of that. But was I in the wrong? I'm I'm very new to this, this aspect, and I'm mostly concerned that I insulted him and came across as a kink-phobic asshole. Again, he in no way gave me cause for concern, but I, I set up for the worst case scenario and then informed him, which I feel like is my main mis- my, was my main mistake. What you said to him was perfectly appropriate. It's actually considered best practices in Kinkland to meet with someone in public in advance of playing with them for the first time, that coffee that you had to establish a rapport and see if you liked him and trusted him, but also to let someone know where you are. That's considered kink best practices. If you're going to go over to somebody's house and they're going to tie you up and it's the first time and you don't really know them from Adam, you let a friend know where you are and who you're with so that if you don't turn up where you're supposed to be the next day or the next week or the next month, somebody knows where to come looking for you or knows who you were with last before you went missing. So it's a little concerning that he would react so negatively to your statement. Maybe he reacted negatively to the seemingly quasi-legalistic 
phrasing that you used, I'm going to take action, sounds kind of threatening. You say that to someone and you're about to sue them. We're going to take legal action. And maybe he overreacted to that, but the onus was on him as somebody who's out there as a bondage top recruiting newbie subs for pictures for his Tumblr blog to address your concerns and to not freak out if you didn't know exactly how in kink land someone might phrase, I'm letting a friend know where I am and I'd like your real name and real phone number so they can have it so somebody knows where I am in the world when I'm tied up and helpless in your house. It's a bad sign that he flew off the handle the way that he did. I would, if I were you, consider this a bullet dodged even if he's good at bondage, even if he's usually pretty reliable and safe. He outed himself in that moment as someone that you probably don't want to have this experience with, not for the first time, maybe not ever. If he's volatile in this way, if he freaks the fuck out, if somebody that's going to tie up phrases something that's standard practice in kinkland in a way that is awkward or maybe in his mind offensive, you're a newbie. You don't have the lingo. You don't have the words. And he could have given them to you and helped you unpack them and been rational and calm and sane. But in that moment, he proved to you that He's not rational. He's not calm. He's not sane. And that's not someone that I would want to be tied up by. And I don't think it's someone that you want to be tied up by either. There are lots of other guys out there in the world who are into bondage. Go find one of them. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old bi woman from the West Coast. I have a question for you and maybe some listeners that have experience with natural methods of birth control. I was on a daily oral birth control pill for over 10 years of my life with a few breaks here and there. I became unhappy with it in part because it killed my libido something that I didn't even realize until after I recently went off the pill for an eight-month stretch. Off the pill, my libido spiked, I became more sexually curious, and I even became more self-confident, creative, and had a clear sense of who I am. I know it's possible that the timing of these feelings is coincidence, but regardless, I felt great and was happy to not be on a medication that, according to my doctor, had been drying up my pussy for 10 years. But of course, I would love to be able to have sex with my husband without a condom and without worry of getting pregnant. We are both pretty nervous about condom reliability as we've had a close call in the past. It's a pretty big deal for both our enjoyment and our sexual relationship. So I had an IUD put in about six months ago, and I'm not very happy with it. They say it takes about three months for your body to adapt, but I'm finding it's taking longer for me. My periods are irregular, sometimes very late, and usually last as long as two weeks. My skin has become horrible, and I swear to God, the sense of my body odor has changed. Since my periods are long, my husband and I don't have sex as often as we would like, and my libido died again. The whole thing feels very unnatural to me, and I feel out of whack. Again, I can't say for sure that all these changes are a direct result of my birth control method, but maybe I'm paranoid about it enough that I won't be able to shake the thought. I'm wondering if you or any of your listeners have experience with natural cycle monitoring methods. I've seen several apps that come with thermometers and other ways to determine your fertility, and the credentials and statistics seem totally legit. I'm pretty in tune with my body and I trust myself to be diligent about paying attention to it, but I'm nervous about it since the stakes are as high as bringing a new life into this world. I haven't spoken to my doctor about this yet, but I doubt they will tell me a cell phone app is a good method of birth control. My issue is also incredibly urgent as my health insurance is going up next month and will soon be unaffordable to me. I will have to go with a less coverage, more out-of-pocket expenses plan which is making me afraid that I won't be able to afford to get this fucking IUD out of my body if I don't make a decision in the next couple of weeks. So should I give this IUD more of a chance or should I get it the fuck out of me? Is a cycle monitoring app really the only good way to be able to enjoy sex and not get pregnant? 
It sounds like hormonal birth control wasn't working for you and you went and got a different kind of hormonal birth control. You went off the pill and went on to an IUD that's also hormonal IUD that's having the same sort of chaotic impact on your sex drive and your periods that your previous hormonal birth control method had. There are non-hormonal IUDs out there that are available. You say you have a doctor that doesn't sound like you communicate well with. I would encourage you to find another doctor or get yourself to a Planned Parenthood clinic and look at the option of a non-hormonal IUD that prevents pregnancy but doesn't screw with your hormone levels. That said, a lot of people do have success with the fertility awareness method. Pulling out is also really effective according to Planned Parenthood. Almost as effective as real-world condom use, not to be confused with perfect condom use. For every 100 women who use the pull-out method perfectly, four will get pregnant. Planned Parenthood says on its website they go on, but pulling out can be difficult to do perfectly. So in real life, about 22 out of 100 women who use withdrawal get pregnant every year. That's about one in five. Those aren't great odds if you are really concerned about preventing a pregnancy. Couple pulling out with fertility awareness and your right to terminate a pregnancy if you get pregnant. If you get pregnant because if you get the IUD out and you use fertility awareness and the pullout method perhaps at the same time or in rolling combination and you get pregnant, you don't have to then bring a life into this world. You aren't obligated to follow through with that pregnancy. You can avail yourself of your constitutional right for now to terminate that pregnancy. There are also lots of sex options that you can stir into the mix that aren't about putting semen up by your cervix. There's lots of great hot sex that two people can have together that presents no risk for pregnancy at all. Oral sex, mutual masturbation, anal if you're into anal, anal sex, pegging his ass while he jacks up, all sorts of things that you can do to mix it up and stir it in and lower your odds of getting pregnant because every time you have sex, you're not necessarily having PIV intercourse, pull out fertility awareness or not. But if you're going to eliminate all methods of birth control, you are going to up your chances of an unplanned pregnancy. There's a fix for that. You can terminate that pregnancy. And again, you can mix in other sex play options that also lower your risk of pregnancy. And of course, if you don't ever want to have kids, he can get a vasectomy. Hey, Dan. Um, this is a caller from the East Coast. I'm calling in regards to the um, allegations of sexual harassment that have been coming out over and over and over again the past few months. Now, just so we're clear, I'm glad that they are happening. I am glad that these women are coming out. I hope that the accused individuals face consequences for their actions. The thing is, is I was sexually assaulted myself twice. And when I hear these accusations over and over again, it feels like someone is taking like an ice pick to my chest. I mean, it just, it, it makes it like kind of relive the incident. And I guess what I'm asking is, how do I get over it? I'm seeing a therapist now, and I try to basically keep away from the news as much as I can. But it seems that like, even if I'm just like looking at Reddit or whatever, it just, you know, something about it pops up. So yeah. There you go. That's my question. First, I want to say I'm really sorry that you were victimized in the way that you were. And your call is a good reminder that men can also be victims of sexual violence and rape. I'm also sorry that you're being tormented by our, the current news cycle, which seems like a necessary and overdue reckoning. But there are a lot of people out there in your shoes or a lot of people who are carrying around trauma 
that they had buried but not really resolved who are in the same position that you are in right now, who feel freshly traumatized. Every time they turn on the news, turn on the radio, look at the internet, there's another story about somebody being outed as a sexual harasser or a rapist. And yeah, that is a trial and not just a trial for you. It's a trial for many. What I would advise you to do is what you're already doing. Go get a therapist, work through this. I don't know what kind of therapy you're in. I don't know what kind of therapy your practitioner practices, but cognitive behavioral therapy is regarded as the best form of therapy to work with someone who has PTSD to help them get to a place where every time they turn on the news or every time they hear of something similar to their trauma, it doesn't feel like that ice pick to the chest that it feels like for you right now. So if your therapist isn't doing CBT with you, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, not to be confused with other forms of CBT we sometimes address on the show, you might want to get another therapist who also does that. If you're doing good work and you feel good about whatever it is you're covering with the therapist you've got now, you don't have to drop them to go do CBT therapy with somebody else. You can do CBT with an additional therapist. And it's just going to take some time. The current news cycle burst out at you post Harvey Weinstein and surfaced for you all of these painful feelings and all of these painful memories. And you're in a place now where you can't even turn on the news. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. And that's terrible. And, and I ache for you and I feel for you, but I'm glad on, on one level that it has motivated you to go get the help that you needed and didn't get in the wake of your assault. You're getting it now. It's going to take some time. Continue to practice self-care, as they say. Avoid the news if you need to, but go do the work. Hi, Dan. Uh, I am a 26-year-old male living on the East Coast. Um, I've been in a relationship now with my girlfriend for over five years, uh, going on six years. And um, recently, the conversation about opening up our relationship has sort of come into play. This is not something that I am immediately opposed to. I didn't react super well when it first came up the other day. The problem that I'm having with all of this is that our sex life currently is not fabulous. You know, we've been together for five years and I understand that, you know, things slow down over time. But recently, the only time that we have sex is when she is drunk and in a mood to sort of uh, go from there. And the other night when we were talking about opening up our relationship, she said that she was not sexually attracted to me in that way and hasn't been for some time now. And I am having a difficult time dealing with this. Uh, we have a great relationship otherwise. Um, we have a working relationship, a collaborative relationship. It's fantastic. We have had a great sex life in the past when we first started dating uh, for several years into our relationship. It was great. And then I think over time with the pressures of life and all of that stuff, and that has sort of started to take over. Um, so I think the problem that I'm having with this conversation about opening up our relationship is that because our sex life doesn't feel great right now, it feels very risky. I am not comfortable with this idea, and it has uh, sort of kept me up uh, over the past few nights, and I don't know how to deal with it. Joining me in the studio to help tackle this question, Luke Burbank, host of Live Wire, an arts and culture radio show and podcast based out of Portland, Oregon. He also co-hosts his own daily five-day-a-week podcast, Too Beautiful to Live, and frequently appears as a guest panelist on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. So, Luke, you are a heterosexual gentleman. Yes. Every once in a while, a little bit of affirmative action, we like to bring in a random straight guy to help answer some questions. Because straight guys, you know how you people are. 
I appreciate uh, being part of the tokenism of this show. <laughs> you know how you people are. You don't ask for directions. You don't. That all like most of the calls are from women or fags. Straight guys don't ask for help. They don't ask questions. So in this rare instance, call from a straight guy asking for help. I know that as a cis white male, I am maybe not the go-to person to answer a lot of these questions. But I will tell you that I have been reading Savage Love since I was a scandalized evangelical Christian 13-year-old <laughs> living here in Seattle. I picked up a copy of The Stranger on oh the app. Thanks for I making me feel ancient. I'd never seen the word faggot written in print. It had and, only been hurled at you on playgrounds. Indeed. And there it was. Hey, faggot. The, the what would you call it? The greeting that you used to put in front of the letters. The back salutation. In the, in the olden days. And I just thought, is this even legal? <laughs> and Oh my God, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. So from there to listening to the podcast to knowing you, I feel like I've been on a lifelong journey to be here right now trying to answer questions. Helping to answer straight people. We like to like, you know, up the straight male voice quotient on the show every once in a while by doubling down on a straight caller by bringing in a straight guy. So you've been reading Savage Love all these years. You should yes. be like down. You should have some handle, some idea of what I might tell this guy. Mm-hmm. You should be able to predict what my advice might be. What would that advice be? And Boy, does it differ in any way from the advice you would give him? Can I start by by giving the advice that I would give, and then let's see if it squares with the recognized master of the form, <laughs> Dan Savage? I'm wondering if this relationship is not as great in the other aspects as this person suspects it is. Because I think if they had a great sex life, and if the sex life is less great, and if the girlfriend has to be inebriated to essentially tolerate the idea, I'm wondering if what's going on for her is a reaction to other stuff in the relationship that does not feel great to her. And yeah, no. And why, why is that the wrong? Well, that's just this idea that if everything is working well in a relationship, that of course you'll be fucking like crazy and attracted to each other. And if you're not fucking, then you need to sort of reverse engineer uh, an explanation that identifies some other thing that you do. Leaving the toilet seat up, uh, leaving crumbs all over the counter. There's something else you're doing that is extinguishing your partner's desire for you. And if you can just identify that thing and undo it, Oh my God. You'll be fucking each other like crazy. And that's just not the way it works, unfortunately. Well, what do you think is happening here then? She doesn't want to fuck him. She has to get drunk to fuck him. She wants to open the relationship. What's happening here is it's fucking over. And he's a doormat. And he needs to get up off the floor outside the door and go. It's over. It's over. Now, what he's doing, what he's saying there, like, if we can fix the relationship, if our sex life was great, then I would want to open it up. That sometimes cart before the horse. Some people open their sex lives up. They open their relationships up, and it revives their sex life. What do you call those people? Polly's under pressure? Polly under duress. Puds. Yeah. Thank you for quoting me to me. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, yeah, puds. Some people become Polly under duress. Their, their partner wants to open it up. They don't want to open it up uh, for whatever reason. But sometimes it's just this reason. Like, our sex life isn't great. So I don't want to open it up until it's great. There are cases where the opening up is what makes it great, that people open it up and they're suddenly not just fucking other people, but they're fucking each other again. And they're excited about each other again because when they look at their partner, they don't see the reason why they can't do whatever. They see the reason why they get to do everything and their interest in their partner is renewed and their desire for their partner is renewed in part because their partner is out there fucking other people. And a lot of even mainstream, more mainstream, uh, Relationship counselors often advise people to go out, flirt, watch your partner dance with somebody else, watch your partner be seen through someone else's eyes and it will revive your attraction to your partner or remind you what you found so attractive about them. And that can play out in an open relationship too. But this, this is different. Okay. I agree with you that there's certainly not any specific thing 
this guy can do to relight the fire of passion uh, in his uh, girlfriend. And I, I, I'm, I would also definitely agree that sort of trying to fix that problem, trying to reverse engineer it, as you said, and like do everything just right so that suddenly she'll be really hubba hubba for him. That's not, that's not going to work. And a lot of uh, advice professionals traffic in this, like if you can just set all the invisible mysterious dials correctly, then it'll work. But you don't know what those dials are. You don't know how to reset them. You're either fucking each other. You're not, you're attracted to each other or you're not, it's working or it's not. And maybe there's something you did that extinguished a libido killing moment, but how can you undo that? But I don't think that's what's going on here. What's going on here is she's not into him, isn't attracted to him. It's five years in, she wants out, and this isn't a let's open the relationship because mm-hmm. that's the best choice for us. This is I want to open the relationship because I've got one foot out the door and I want to audition my next boyfriend while I'm still getting half the rent paid by my ex who doesn't know he's my ex yet. So, well, he knows now. <laughs> sorry, sorry we're being kind of brutally honest here and straightforward, but but dude, come on. So your advice in this case would be to start seeing this for what it is and it would be for him to uh would it be to sort of draw a line, a firm line and say I'm not interested in opening the relationship and in fact, if we don't start having more sex, this relationship does not work for me. Yeah, I'm out of here. Somebody who doesn't want to fuck you, has to get drunk to fuck you, you should probably pull the plug. Now, if he's in a place where he can't end it either and he'd like to get out there and start auditioning girlfriends himself, if uh, calling it open when what you're actually doing is both of you are transitioning out of this relationship in a friendly way, if you live together well as partners and you want to be glorified roommates for a while who call each other boyfriend and girlfriend while you're both out there pursuing others and examining your options and really laying the groundwork for the exit, then go for it. You can take that sort of conflict avoidance path of least resistance out of this relationship. But you know, what he's asking is how can I help her to be more attracted to me? You know, is there any reversing that outside in your professional opinion, outside of opening the relationship or seeing your partner flirt with someone else or have sex with somebody else? Is there anything that short of that, that does possibly kind of reignite that attraction mechanism in people? Rent a cabin in the woods, go for three days, and take ecstasy. And I'm completely serious. They used to use MDMA as a couples counseling tool to help people reconnect with what they really loved about Cary Grant and, was a famous user of. And set aside the anxieties and resentments and just, you know, the having to argue with, you know, you know, having to read out the bill of indictment about why I'm not fucking you right now, why I'm not into you right now. And they would just like take a married couple in conflict in the 60s and 70s, dosed them both, and then they would leave thinking, you know what? I can see again now why I loved you in the first place. So you can try that as kind of a hallelujah pass if you can get your hands on some MDMA and rent a cabin in the woods. And she's willing to go. And she doesn't have to get fucking plastered before she can get in the car. Maybe it'll work. See, so there is hope. Caller from the East Coast. Good luck, caller from the East Coast. I hope that wasn't too harsh, uh, but I blame Luke. I would <laughs> usually be more gentle, but Luke is in the room. Will you stick around for a couple more calls? I would be honored. Hey, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old female, straight, exploring. I enjoy anal. I really do. However, in my last relationship, I was with a guy who didn't quite understand that it takes some time to get comfortable and warmed up and ready for him to stick his dick up my ass. So I have sort of been thinking about I'm pretty committed to the idea of if you want to do it to me, I need to be able to do it to you. Because with that particular um, partner, 
that was something we did is I, I pegged him. We only did that once or twice, but I, you know, it was mostly, he agreed to it. It wasn't something I demanded and said, you must do this. We talked about it. He wasn't against it. And, you know, afterwards I was like, Hey, now do you, do you sort of understand or get an idea of what it's like for me to have a dick in my ass? And can you just slow the fuck down sometimes? But I am sort of talking to somebody new right now who seems to be pretty adamantly against the idea of anything up his, his ass. Which, okay, that's fine, but I really enjoy anal. And if you've never done it before and you've never had it done to you, how can I expect? you to take care of me or you know understand what's going on i don't know if that's reasonable unreasonable i've never really heard anybody else talk about addressing it that way and i would really love to hear your thoughts on the idea so let's say hypothetically there was a woman that you wanted to fuck in the ass. This is going to be difficult for you to talk about because I understand that your wife is sitting right behind me. Literally four feet behind <laughs> you. <laughs> but let's Staring say, directly into my eyes. Hypothetically, there was a woman and before you were married who you wanted to fuck in the ass. And her bar, the bar she set was, I fuck you in the ass first. Speaking for all straight men everywhere, what would you say? Well, this is a topic we cover week in and week out on my public radio Sounds show. Sounds like Live you're not Wire. answering the question. Sounds so, like you're no, moving I'm away. No, I'm, I'm saying I'm I'm well versed in this. Okay, comes um, up on NPR a lot. I understand all, on the, all the time. I mean, yeah, <laughs> late at night on the weekends. There's a whole show dedicated to this question. To me, it comes down to how important is it to the guy in this scenario? If the guy wants to do that badly enough, then of course that's. I mean, that seems like a fair price to pay. That's that's assuming that the guy's not into that, that he's like, that's not a kink for him. He's just saying, I will tolerate this, the pegging, mm -hmm. in order to get to take part in this other thing that I really want to do. Here's where I get confused, though, with the logic of the caller is if she is the one who is into this particular style of sexual Congress. But then she, in order to receive that, wants to force the other person to themselves receive something that they may not be into, mm -hmm. that is where this starts to fall apart for I me agree. a little bit. Yeah, there's a, bit, there's a bit of a disconnect there because what you're asking is, before we do this thing that I enjoy, I want to do something that you say you don't enjoy if it's a guy who doesn't want to be pegged. Uh, and I understand the desire to sensitize the guy to what it is like to be fucked in the ass and it's different than being fucked in the vag and some guys don't get that and some guys go too fast and they're too violent and nothing – Nothing concentrates the mind like they used to say about execution. Something concentrates the mind quite like the, your execution schedule in the morning. Nothing concentrates the mind quite like your ass is going to get fucked too and sensitizes someone to that process, to being on the receiving end. But there's another way to get to good anal from someone who's never been penetrated, which is you as the bottom, you as the person being fucked, you are in charge. You are in control. They lay there very still. And you fuck yourself with their dick. You treat their dick like a dildo. You fuck yourself on it. They don't move. You can make that a condition. Look, you are going to get to fuck me in the ass, but actually I'm going to fuck myself in the ass with your dick. The minute you, your hips start to move, the minute you start doing anything, it's over. Lay there very still. Get hard and I'm going to lower myself onto your dick. That is an option. And it's one I'd like to hear you unpack on NPR. On Wait, Wait, What Don't Tell Me, I believe Peter Sagal would go there. You know, that would be a great way to end the show. 
permanently. I mean, yes, like that would be the last episode of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. But God, what a way back, to go out. Bring it back next week. Just rename it Prairie Vole Companion. <laughs> They're not using that name anymore, by the way. No, Prairie Vole. Oh, oh, which well, is a little see, varmint that digs yeah. in little holes. Oh, there so you go. See, and that, like by an the way, anal sex focused banjo strumming. And 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 Garrison Keillor doesn't own the trademark to that version of the name, Prairie Vol Companion. There you go. Because that's the whole issue right now, not to make this about public radio, but they've, they've had some challenges because of some rights issues. So that one is just there and available. I have a Garrison Keillor story I'll share with you when we are no longer recording. Um, but circling back to the caller, you yes. can make whatever demand you want from someone. You can tell someone, we can do X, but I get to cut off your little pinky finger first. That's my, that's the line I'll draw. And no sane person would allow you to do that and they can go. Like somebody who says, if you say you can fuck my ass, I get to peg you first. That's opt in. They can agree or disagree and uh, and go. But the but again, I return to your point. The caller wants to be fucked in the ass. She likes being fucked in. And the also, ass. and maybe this is not how we talk about these things anymore, or not a good way to analyze a call on the Savage Lovecast. But I also found a certain level of. I felt like there was a little bit of um, whipsawing in the caller's voice and the way they were talking energetically. Mm. Like when she mentioned, you know, anal sex, like she almost felt like there was a bit of resentment woven in there, even though she wasn't the one who initiated the call. And by her description, she wanted to, she wants to be a part of this, but then she seemed almost angry about how it was uncomfortable for her at times. Or maybe aroused. Or maybe aroused. And that's why I'm saying, I don't know if I'm talking about this correctly anymore. She's excited to say anal sex. Maybe so, but it just seemed like there, there seemed like there was a little bit of volatility in the way that she was talking about this, which made me wonder if her feelings on it aren't a little bit complex too. And I would, and another feeling I think she needs to examine in the caller, you need to think about this. Do you want to peg guys just in a retaliatory sense or do you enjoy it? She seemed a little mad at the, mechanics of anal sex as it applied to her life but she and likes pe- it but she likes it but she didn't like that other people have not who she's been with have not been thoughtful about how it's gone down um lots of lube go very slow the person getting fucked determines when you start to go faster like people see porn they see anal and porn where people are just fucking slamming and you know what they edited out the first two minutes first three four minutes of the anal unless it's somebody who's just already open already ready to go the first few minutes, there's not pounding. You do, you get there. You earn that in time, as I'm sure I don't need to tell you. Right, of course. I mean, this everything you've said is exactly what I was going to say. But since <laughs> you said it so eloquently, I'll just I'll leave it at that. Breathe, breathe, breathe. Slow, slow, slow. At first, lots of lube. And you can get there. If you can't get the guy to allow you to peg him, you can get to that place by using your words, by communicating how you need it to work so that he can have this anal that he would like to have. And by you setting the pace, you setting the pace, you being in control, you being in charge. The bottom runs it. It's kind of like S&M. The bottom's in charge. The bottom sets the limit. Is limits. this the term Same power with anal, bottom? The bottom runs it. Is that the origin of the term no, power, power bottom? power bottom is somebody who can really get the shit fucked out of them, really get slammed. Oh, okay. That you I can thought that meant like drive. they were controlling the situation. No, no. A power bottom is someone who's like eating your dick with their ass, like chewing your dick off. I have much to learn. <laughs> well, we have one more call. Let's see what else we can get to. Hey, Dan, a uh, long-time listener, straight, married, monogamous man in a major metro area. I, I have a weird question. Um, so Facebook friends and I were discussing something other than horrifying politics for once, because we found a video of a company that makes hyper-realistic sex dolls. These dolls look just like women, well, like really disproportionate cartoon women who speak to you, make eye contact, 
can remember things are programmed with backstories and preferences that also vibrates and get warm to the touch. And I'm getting a little creeped out just talking about it. Um, so I guess our, our question is this. Why is this creepy? Because the thought of a voice-activated masturbator isn't creepy and should totally be a thing if it isn't. Uh, porn isn't creepy, and those performers don't get to choose when you click the button. Um, even VR porn isn't that creepy, but this is. I don't want to yuck anybody's yum, and if these dolls are used for things that most humans wouldn't consent to, I guess that's fine, so long as they can't feel pain or develop preferences or have wants or needs or feelings because their brains don't have chemicals to do that with. Uh, it's still kind of squicky. I don't know. Is, is this wrong, or have we just slid too deep into the uncanny valley? So how many lifelike sex dolls do you own? Uh, currently? Yes. Uh, I've more I've moved more into leasing them because I mean when you drive the thing off the lot it loses half of its value so it's just buying them is a financially and that new a doll bad decision. smell it's gone in just a few weeks exactly so uh, you know I try to be smart about it financially here's if I could here's why I think that this idea of an extremely realistic but not alive not human sex thing that we could have sex with. The reason why I think it's a little intimidating to think about and a little weird to think about is because it really raises the possibility that we won't need other humans for our sexual excitement and gratification and ultimately that we won't be needed as humans for someone else's sexual gratification and excitement. I mean, if if I'm thinking about, uh, oh, now they make a robot that can do this, then what about my wife who's sitting five feet away they're going to make a robot that can do that for her. And then where am I in that equation? I think that's where my mind goes when I think about this. Don't stuff. factor your ego out of it. That a robot can't choose you. A robot has no agency. So some of, some people need to be with someone who wants to be with them. And a robot's just a toaster with a flashlight duct taped to it and a face stapled on top. Right. And, and, and so there's no sort of affirmation of your value attractiveness worth humanity really when your relationship is with the robots i'm actually not that concerned about if we could all have a lifelike robot we would not choose then to have uh partners or not be uh, aroused by being with uh, a human flesh and blood partner who chose us i don't think that's true in most cases i think what creeps us out about robots is that it forces us to think about people who would prefer that as a partner and that creeps us out. It forces us to consider people who, but for the availability of a sex bot could not have a partner because they're so socially maladapted or unconventionally attractive in ways that are so unconventional that no one is attracted to them at all. And that makes us sad that there's a sort of pathos to the sad, lonely guy with the 10 sex bots in his basement who has no other friends and has no other options. Yeah. But if they get those sex bots dialed in enough, to where it's, I mean, again, I don't think it's there yet. I haven't done a lot of research lately on the industry, <laughs> but I mean, it's, there will be a day when, it, in, in our lifetime, in probably the next five, 10 years, where there will be sex dolls that are so lifelike that you, you might not even know the difference. And then you get this other question, which is like, I, I know you're saying that it matters that the person has agency and autonomy and has decided they're interested in you, right? And the robot can't do that. But like, Honestly, I think there's going to be a lot of people who will just say the doll is easier and it's close enough. I mean, don't you think that but people that, can already say that with pornography, with flashlights, with and sex they do, workers? Right? Some do. Most people don't. And why not? It's not as because if, I think the sex dolls aren't good enough because the sex workers won't live in your basement 
for a one-time fee. <laughs> and because the pornography is still a flat screen, I guess they have like 3D glasses. But I'm just saying it's – I think that what's keeping not everybody but a portion of the population still interested in human contact or still pursuing human contact is that the systems in place for the non-human interaction aren't quite there. But they're getting damn close. And when they cross over – I don't know if that's technically the uncanny. I know the uncanny valley is the kind of robots that are a little too lifelike, but not quite. But when they get across the uncanny valley into the damn, this is basically the same ridge, which is on the other side of the uncanny so valley. Westworld AI, Duxess Machina, uh, these bots you think are coming, and I just a I don't see them coming. And and the the new Blade Runner wasn't spoiler alert, spoiler alert. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I'm never going to see it. Wasn't Ryan Gosling a bot too? Maybe I didn't see it either. And maybe if there was a Ryan Gosling bot out there, I would choose that. I'm 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 just I'm going to be very curious to see what happens when the technology like 100% gets there. What that actually does. And again, I'm not passing judgment. I'm not saying that that's like a bad thing. Whatever is making people happy. But I think it's going to be an interesting thing when people can have and I know what you're saying, Dan. I'm not trying to repeat you, but you're saying there are sex workers. There is pornography. There are a variety of ways that people can pursue their sexual desires outside of the traditional boy meets girl, boy meets boy, whatever. But once there are these robot things or whatever they are that are so believable that you don't know the difference, that's a whole other situation that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I hope I'm alive to to see it and see how it plays out because I still think the niggling awareness at the back of your head that this seemingly human in every aspect appliance is attracted to you because it was programmed to be attracted to you because somebody pressed a button is going to, for many people, eliminate from that sexual congress, from that point of contact, from that intimacy, something that is valuable and important and essential and not fakeable, that, that can't be programmed around, that, that, that has to exist, that spark of, uh, of human choice and human contact. I just don't think that you're going to fall in love with your Ryan Gosling toaster. I don't know. I've gotten a crush. to the backside. I've gotten a crush on like the internet help desk for the airline and only realized five messages in that it's a bot. <laughs> like she seems nice. Terry, I like her. And then it's like, Oh, I realize no, this is a computer program I'm talking to. Like it does did you see the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix? No, I did not. That movie I thought was incredible and very relevant to this conversation because, you know, he's got this sort of AI friend uh voiced by Scarlett Johansson that just lives in the little earbud that he keeps in his ear. And I'll tell you, you you hear her voice and as a straight male, you understand, I did anyway, the appeal of having this little friendly voice kind of live in your ear. And I thought this doesn't and we and you say that as someone who is a friendly voice who lives in many people's ears yes. through your podcast and your program and i very much hope that when we reach this are you a sex future, bot i would like to be considered for the voice of a sex bot <laughs> when we get the technology there uh, i'm i'm putting myself out there as available you and josh gad i think should voice <laughs> the sex bots oh my god me and lafu <laughs> i just hope when the they start making male sex spots for the gay market that they include a line that has the gay voice a lot of gay guys aren't into their gay voices a lot of gay guys say they aren't attracted to gay voices i find them very appealing and i'm worried that if we all have to shift to sex bot partners exclusively i won't be able to find the gay male sex bot partner with the voice that i like you know what they say oh he opened his mouth and a purse fell out i'm always like yeah more room for my dick now i love that <laughs> again 
You said what I was about to say. <laughs> Luke Burbank, where can people find your shows? Oh, uh, thank you. Well, Livewire Radio is on 125 stations around the country. Go to livewireradio.org to and find out really more about And it's really terrific. I've been a guest, so particularly you, have, you want to go find those episodes. Yes, they were, they were great, Dan. Thanks for being such a friend of the show. And then also I do this podcast called TBTL. You can go to tbtl.net. That's five days a week, and it's just all anal sex talk. Because <laughs> it's a podcast. Yes, exactly. And we, that's our. That's like really the only thing that's left to podcasting exclusively, or what podcasts really pioneer. Yes, you couldn't talk about butt sex on NPR. You couldn't talk about butt sex on network television. Podcast yes. came along, and it's been all butt sex all the time for what a decade. Yep, yep. And we're about to celebrate our ten year anniversary in a few weeks um, on TBTL. So uh, that's uh, it's amazing how far we've taken it. Just talking in graphic terms about anal sex. Luke Burbank, listen to all of his shows. They're terrific. Particularly, go find Livewire on your stations. It's NPR everywhere. It's it's, uh, there, it's right? PRI, which is like NPR, uh, in that they're like a distributor like NPR's, but it's on your local NPR station. All right, we're going to turn off the microphones because I want to tell you my Garrison Keillor story. I am tell me yours. dying to hear this. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a 35-year-old gay man living in a small college town near the East Coast. My boyfriend of 13 years is 37. We are best friends. We own a home together. We get along very well, enjoy each other's company, and see eye to eye on most things. He is the only significant relationship I've had, and I know how you feel about that, and it's not completely perfect, but I really do feel like he is my .64 that I can round up to one. My boyfriend is worried about getting older, kind of having a bit of a midlife crisis. It doesn't help that we live and work in a college town and are surrounded by gorgeous 20-somethings constantly. About 10 months ago, my boyfriend confided in me that he had fallen in love or become infatuated with a 21-year-old man that we both also work with. They've had some occasional casual conversations at work and have had lunch together one time. This infatuation has caused him to lose sleep regularly and wake up in the middle of the night very sad. He sometimes just doesn't quite seem like the person he used to be. He tells me that he just can't shake these feelings and it's all he can think about sometimes. He's been very honest with me about everything and I've tried to be as supportive as possible, but I'm worried about him. About four months ago, he directly asked this young man if he was interested, and he responded that he just wanted to be friends. I thought that this was the beginning of the end of this, but my boyfriend recently admitted that he still can't get it out of his mind. Dan, I don't even know if this kid is gay. My boyfriend really doesn't know this young man very well, but somehow this infatuation seems to be much deeper or different than just a pure physical thing because it would be fine with me if he just needed to step out a little bit and get out this out of his system. I've tried to get him to separate the feelings he has for me and the feelings he has for this young man, and he just tells me it's all jumbled in his head. We've talked about the fact that I might not just be meeting his emotional needs, but I feel like I'm a very good partner. He's very self-aware and realizes he is feeling things that don't really make sense, and he doesn't want to break up and make a huge life-changing decision when he's so confused. It's like he doesn't want to lose me, but he also says he never felt the same way about me as this young man that he barely even knows. I've listened to tons of your advice for other people, and I just can't figure out whether you would tell me to DTMFA or that someone you can get along with this well doesn't come around that often and that we need to work on it. I'm trying to be the supportive partner, but I don't want to be on a roller coaster forever. It would be dishonest if I didn't say I was scared of splitting up also. I don't want to give up my home, and I love where I live, and I'm really not the big city type, and I know how you love cities. And there aren't really that many people around here, especially gay men in their 30s. And as a side note, uh, listening to a lot of your archives for the last year or so has been really helpful. So thank you for all the work you do. I'm trying to understand how your boyfriend of 13 years could say something so cruel to you as 
this 21-year-old at work that I've had lunch with once and a few conversations with that I don't even know if he's gay, I'm more in love with him than I ever was with you. I feel things for him that I never felt for you. That's so cruel. It's almost disqualifyingly cruel. It's slamming your hand down on the self-destruct or eject button cruel. That's saying the thing that can't be unsaid to someone, the sort of thing that you say or that someone might say when they want out consciously or subconsciously. It's so destructive, so self-destructive. It's the sort of statement that a relationship sometimes can't recover from, even if it's said in anger, even if it's said at times and not meant. It's a difficult thing to walk back. And you've taken it in stride and you sound endlessly indulgent and compassionate and thoughtful and patient. And I think those are all wonderful traits and I commend you for them. I also think you need to sit with that statement and determine for yourself whether you want to be in this relationship anymore. You're only 35. Now, when I was 35, I felt really old. But now that I'm 35 and change, I look back at 35 and that seems pretty fucking young. You're only 35. You don't have to move to a big city. You can find people. There are dating apps now. You can find people even in the ruralist or college towniest of areas in your age cohort who might make more appropriate partners for you. You have options. You actually have more realistic options than your long-term partner does. If his only option besides you is this boy who doesn't want him, he's kind of fucked. And it's not about this boy. This is going to be one of those shows where I'm constantly urging everyone to go get a therapist. I think you should urge your boyfriend to go get a fucking therapist. It's not about this boy. It's about what this boy symbolizes. And you mentioned it at the top of the call. Your boyfriend, your long-term partner is a little freaked out about getting older. It happens to us all. happens to everybody. This isn't for your partner about this boy. It's about what that boy, 21-year-old adult male, symbolizes. The end of his youth. Not in his 20s anymore. He's in his 30s. He's moving further and further away from the possibilities that your 20s represent, that they symbolize. And that's bullshit because we have possibilities in our 20s and we have possibilities in our 30s that are sometimes very similar to the possibilities in our 20s. And then we have possibilities in our 40s and 50s that are different and rewarding and 60s in their own way different and rewarding. I think your boyfriend needs someone to help him process and grieve the loss of his youth. And then maybe he'll be in a place where he can love you again. He'll come through this fever that he's in and emerge back into your relationship. Not whole. None of us is really ever whole, but functional and healthy and in a place where he can recognize what you two are to each other and what you mean to him and where you're at right now and its, and its value. And then occasionally you guys can bone a 22-year-old college student together. It's the perk of being the gay non-monogamous couple in the college town. Go for it. But your boyfriend can't be 21 again. He needs to let that go. And getting with a 21-year-old isn't going to make him 21 again. 21-year-olds aren't vampires. You bite your neck and then you turn into one of them. He's going to have to get the fuck over it. And you, you have to ask yourself, if he doesn't get over it, he can't get past this. If he becomes one of those pathetic guys who are constantly unhappy and then vicious to those people in their lives that they claim to love because... They're not 24 anymore or 22 anymore and they'll never get the fuck over it. You have to decide for yourself if you want to stay with him. Sounds like you do. House, home, couple, history together, all valuable. Get his ass to a therapist. Stop helping him process this 21-year-old and his crush. 
Tell him he needs to go talk about that with a therapist and circle back to you when he's ready to be in this relationship with you again. And if he's not ready to be in this relationship with you again soon, you need to pull the plug. Hi, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old female, and I've been dating my boyfriend for about a year and a half now. We've always been long distance, but we make the most of the time that we're together, and we click really well. We had some infidelity issues on his side for the first half of our relationship, and we took some time apart to reconsider things. But in the end, we both decided that we wanted the other to be in our lives, so we decided to give it another shot. Um, Knowing this would be difficult, especially for me, because this is the sixth relationship I've been in where I've been cheated on, but we took on the challenge and our communication since then has improved tenfold. We're very open and we have a great relationship now. I honestly do feel like I trust him more and, and our trust issues are going away. But the problem is that I fall into these holes where I get really insecure and anxious and suspicious of every single thing he does, especially revolving around social media, because that's how I found out about the cheating in the first place. I try to talk to him about this when I'm in these moods because we have said that we're going to be open about everything now. But I feel really annoying and ashamed that I can't seem to shake this feeling. Uh, The thing that really concerns me the most is that sometimes when I'm in these moods, my self-esteem gets so low that I'm actually turned on by the thought of him with somebody else. And it's not in a good way. When I come with that thought in my head, I just feel horrible after and just want to cry. I really don't want this to continue to be an issue in our relationship, but I don't know what to do. Could use your advice, Dan. You're 22 years old, right? Yep. You've been with this guy for 1.5 years since, so since you were 20? Yes. Yeah. And, and you also said that in six previous relationships, you were cheated on. Yep. How many relationships yeah. did you have before you were 20? How long did they last? At what point did they cheat? What form did the cheating take? Uh, it was all sort of, I mean, they obviously weren't too long, but um, another relationship I had, which was about one and a half years, also had infidelity issues. And then the other ones just sort of ended when they cheated, which, you know, it didn't get too far. But yeah, I've had about six semi-serious situations when that's happened in. And uh, so well, wait, yeah, wait. You, you, you say these very, very short term relationships ended when they cheated. Had you guys made a commitment to be exclusive and then they ran out with somebody else in violation of this commitment? Yeah, it would be sort of right after we made a commitment to be serious like that. And then mm. it would dissolve. Yeah. And it was explicitly understood that this commitment to be serious also meant sexual exclusivity. You just weren't defaulting to that. You were saying that out loud. I think there might've been one or two cases where it was not as verbal as it could have been. Um, but the rest were very understood, serious, committed. Okay. Well, I hope you wouldn't be too traumatized by that because that just sounds like a lot of young person, adolescent drama as opposed to infidelity, which is kind of a $30 word to attach to. I was dating a guy for a month in high school and he hooked up with Sally at a party. (laughs) Like like attaching infidelity to that elevates that event to sort of a, a place of emotional consequence that it doesn't deserve and you don't want to attach that kind of importance to it because it'll leave you feeling insecure and vulnerable for the rest of your life you were just 
in these past relationships, you were just kids figuring it out, figuring out what you wanted, figuring out how to behave and comport yourself and how to treat each other. And you dated a couple of adults who didn't treat you well. And maybe you did some things that weren't awesome either in a relationship. I'm sure that can be said. Yeah, sure. (laughs) So let's all just water under the bridge. So let's not talk about or really think about or attach weight or importance to these six incidents before you were 20. Let's just talk about this one with this guy that you're with now. Okay. 1.5 years. You guys had an explicit, although LDR, you had an explicit commitment to sexual exclusivity that had been articulated and he violated that. Yes. By fucking many times. Many times. He had an affair or many affairs. Um, oh no, sorry. We, we stated it many times, but it was, ex- uh, that it was mutually exclusive. Um, it, mm-hmm. he cheated, I want to say, I think two times to my knowledge that was explicitly stated with one um, person, the same person, both times, twice physically with one person and once emotionally with a different person. Mm-hmm. What's an emotional affair look like to you? What do you, when you say emotional affair, what do you mean? Saying I love you. I, to someone else and uh, other things of that nature, like interacting with their family still, that kind of thing. Okay. Well, that's legit. I think that does rise to the level of emotional affair. Some people have you know, attached the emotional infidelity label to something that was just a flirtation or, uh, or an infatuation right. with a coworker, which people aren't really in control of that necessarily. People are in control of their actions. People mm-hmm. are responsible for their choices. But sometimes you have kind of a chemical response. You're just like crushed out on somebody and it wasn't something you chose to do because you wanted to betray your partner or, you, or because you are betraying your partner. It just is a feeling that welled up that then, you know, if you're responsible and you're in a committed relationship, you're not going to act on it. You're going to find a way to channel that desire toward your partner or go rub one out every once in a while and – work through it on your own. But sometimes people like take those $30 words and they attach them to minor drama. And then they experience the minor drama as major drama. Cause they put these $30 words on them and labels. Yeah, that's fair. And don't do that. Okay. So you forgave him and you got past it. It's interesting the way you talk about how much better your relationship is now, the way you guys communicate now, the transparency, the honesty, you really see each other in a way that you didn't see each other before and you've forgiven him and taken him back. But you're still insecure. When he's on his phone, he's texting somebody. You get a feeling about that. When you have those feelings, what does he do to set you at ease? Well, that's kind of the tricky part because half the time I don't tell him because I don't because I want him to think that I still that I'm trusting him more and more and I want things to get better um so sort of like forcing it a little bit but then when I do feel like I can tell him about it and I should tell him about it I think he's just a little bit uncertain of what to say I mean he's definitely there for me mm-hmm. when I when I need to air out whatever it is that I, is on my mind but um I don't I think he's a little bit unsure of what to say because he thinks that his part is done that he's changed his behavior and that's all he needs to do but mm-hmm. um I don't, I don't know that he well, knows exactly what to say, and I'm not sure I know either. He, he cheated, and so what he has to do is provide you with reassurance now and then when you require it. I don't think you should ask for it every time you have a little niggling feeling about, about insecurity because you, you want to not be the basket case crazy person that he's stuck yeah, with now. exactly. And, and, and we are responsible to some extent to regulate our own emotions and feelings and not just drag our partners through the shit every time – we have a feeling that we know may not be entirely rational. Sometimes we have to stuff it down 
and not demand reassurance constantly. But occasionally I think you should go to him and say, you know, every once in a while I struggle with these feelings. I don't come to you every time I struggle with these feelings because I'm self-regulating and I trust you, but I just right now need a little reassurance. And then he should, like a Pez dispenser, pop that out for you. (laughs) And that's part of the penance he will do for perhaps years for you to feel secure in the relationship. Now let's talk about the masturbation. Yeah. And the fantasies. That's really complicated. And I have a theory. I have a different way of framing this for you that I think will help. Yeah, let's hear it. A lot of people's kinks are eroticized anxieties. If you listen to the show, you've probably heard me talk about that a lot, right? Uh-huh. You know, you look mm-hmm. at so many women have rape fantasies and ravishment fantasies. Some people prefer to call them because in someone's ravishment fantasy, they're being overwhelmed and taken by someone they wish to be taken by. So although consent isn't explicit, des- desire is there and th- whatever happens is not unwelcome or traumatizing. But, you know, women live every day with the fear of sexual violence and some people's erotic imaginations grab onto those fears and eroticize them and turn the lemons of anxiety into the lemonade of kink and turn on and desire and orgasms. Sounds like you have some anxiety about being cheated on. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds you're masturbating about mental images of your boyfriend with somebody else, particularly with the person that he cheated on you with. Your congratulations, your erotic imagination took your anxieties and turned them into something else. <laughs> they have been transubstantiated. Yeah, I would I would say it would be great if I didn't feel as as negative because I have tried to make it a positive thing, like thinking, oh, you know, maybe this is just a kink that I'm discovering that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just I think it's the after effects that make me think that it's not. But do you feel bad uh, after you come? Do you feel bad after you come because you genuinely feel bad or are you psyching yourself up to feel bad because you ought to feel bad because infidelity and cheating and being cheated on is something that you should feel bad about and you sort of will yourself back into the emotions that you experienced when the infidelity was discovered, not because you want to be there or not because you really even feel that, but you're going through the motions of feeling that because of sex negativity and kink negativity and and, and shame. It could be a little bit of both. Yeah, it's so hard to say. Like you said, it's complicated. It is complicated. And if you talk to people out there who have serious, like I call them varsity level kinks, and there's a real common experience a lot of people have when they were first acting out on their kinks, first exploring them, whether with a partner or solo with fantasy, giving themselves permission to really go there in their imaginations, to really like rub it out, thinking about it. We And people call it post-orgasm regret. Where you come and then you're like, holy shit. Ah, I have to get mm-hmm. out of here. Even a lot of <laughs> young gay people, young queer people, lesbians, gay men, bisexual people will have a same sex experience that they want to have. They want to be there. They're really enjoying it. The minute they climax, they're like, oh, I have to go. I feel terrible about this. <laughs> and it's like desire was overriding the shame. And then when, you know, you have your orgasm and, you know, if you're a dude, you're in your refractory period and desire recedes. The shame surfaces and the self-hatred and self-loathing surfaces because you haven't purged that shit yet. Eventually you will. That would be nice. Yeah. If it could, if I could separate the two of those things, um, that would be wonderful because it's not necessarily the fact that it's eroticized that 
that bothers me. I think it is the the fact that like the self confidence is still at a low point. So I think that's where the negative emotions come from. When you say the self confidence is at a low point, what do you mean? Um, I think yeah, like I said, I get in holes where my self confidence is a bit low, and then I think it the masturbation comes. That's where the negative feelings come after the masturbation is because. Mm-hmm my self-confidence isn't where it needs to be, but if it was, and I still had those erotic thoughts and maybe it wouldn't be such a negative. When you say that, what I hear or what I think you might be saying is there are moments where I feel I'm not enough for him. And when I'm in that sort of low self-confidence, low self-esteem place, I'm likely to masturbate about this when I wasn't enough for him. And it sandpapers all those anxieties and fears about me not being enough for him. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Guess what? You're not enough for him. That, that is a given. And he's not enough for you. And no two people are enough for each other. There's no settling now without settling for. Nobody gets everything that they want. No one person can meet all of your needs, erotically, emotionally, romantically, sexually. There's always going to be something that you're kind of rounding up and making up for with your partner, as your partners do with you. And we should just accept that as a given. You know, people say that to me all the time. Oh, I caught my boyfriend looking at porn and it makes me feel terrible because it makes me feel like I'm not enough for him. You're not. Get over it. You're not enough for him. And he's not enough for you. Is he? Honestly, just be honest. Don't let him listen to this show. Is he enough for you? Is he everything (laughs) that you want? No, no, that's definitely a fair point. That's true. All right, then. So you're not masturbating about something particular to you. This... I am not enough for my partner is true of all coupled people. Mm-hmm. It's not an insecurity. It's not about low self-confidence. It's not about low self-esteem. It's just about the way you understand that, that you are not enough. And you've attached fear to it and insecurity to it instead of just accepting it and embracing it and accepting it, you know, from a good place. I'm not everything that he could ever possibly want, but I am who he wants. He wants me despite my shortcomings or despite the shit that I don't bring to the table. He wants me for other reasons that, that compensate, that overwhelm, that make up for. And you know that's true for your partner because it's true of your partner for you. Yeah. Well, do you think that there's anything I should do at the moment like in order to make the situation a little bit better? Because I think it's just – it's just very emotionally yeah. exhausting wow. at the moment. And I think it's emotionally exhausting because you force yourself to to go through the motions of experiencing emotional exhaustion attached to these things. And you need to give yourself permission to decouple the erotics of it from the emotional trauma of the infidelity itself. And you need to say to yourself, my kinks exist in my head, in my fantasy life, in our fantasies uh, – and our erotic imaginations are free to go wherever they want to go and do, and we can do whatever we want to do in our brain between our ears when we're diddling ourselves. And we don't have to answer to some higher power. We don't have to feel bad about it to exonerate ourselves when it's over. We don't have to do penance and say three Hail Marys and feel awful afterwards. We can own it. But but go to your boyfriend and say, you know, every once in a while the insecurity wells up and I'm going to need to come to you. I'm not going to come to you every time the insecurity wells up, but every once in a while I'll, I'll need to say something and I just need you to reassure me. And that's not too big a price to pay considering your infraction. I don't know if you've shared with him the fact that you've masturbated about these things. I don't know if you want to. I don't know if you should because that could complicate things going forward. But I think you should really lean into this 
fantasy without guilt. That doesn't mean you have to become a cuck queen, which is a female cuckold, down the road. And you have to give them permission <laughs> to fuck other people or anything. It's a fine thing to fantasize about your partner being with someone else without ever having to act on that or give them permission to act on that. But mm. you don't know where that's going to go if you can decouple the shame from the erotics. And it could go to a place that's very interesting and very fulfilling, whether or not it ever involves a third person or not. Yeah, no, that's definitely, I'd never thought about it that way before. I only thought about like making it go away. So yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, Making it go away is like, don't think about an elephant. Don't think about a banana. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. you, You can't will away your kinks or your sexual orientation or your erotic sex always wins. (laughs) <laughs> it's more powerful than we are. It made you. It made us. It'll unmake us. You, you negotiate your surrender, the terms of your surrender with sex. You don't. You, you you can make the best deal you can possibly make, but you can't dictate terms to sex. Give yourself a break. There's pleasure in those mental images for you, even though their source is a, a time of trauma. Let go of the trauma. Let your boyfriend love you. Seek reassurance when you need it. Stop putting yourself on the rack about your fantasies, wherever they came from, whatever inspired them. Sounds good. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Good luck. Hi, Dan. Uh, I am late 30s. My wife is uh, late 20s, and she's actually right here. Say hi. Hi, Dan. But she wants me to ask the question. Um, So she does not really have many friends, and she wants uh, more friends. However, she actually has very specific requirements. She wants a guy friend because she feels like she gets along better with guys. And she wants him to be gay, Um, I guess. So there's no confusion, uh, like in contraction or anything like that. Yeah, she's confirming that. Um, So my question is, our question is, is that okay to be that specific? Um, I don't know if it's, yeah, is it like any kind of objectification? It's like if someone says, I only want to date you know, Asians, it's kind of weird. I mean, is it weird to say I want a, a friend who, and he has to be gay? Um, and, and then how do you go about doing that? Because, uh, you know, there's apps for finding dates and sex partners and, and that kind of thing, boyfriends, girlfriends, but I don't, we don't think there's any apps for finding friends. So I don't know. Is it okay? Uh, what do you think of that? And any suggestions on how we would go about it? Squad, Bumble, BFF, Meet My Dog, Click, Scout, Patook, Meetup. There are lots of apps out there just for making friends, for meeting up with people who might be your next BFF. You could have Googled it. I Googled it. That's how I got that list. So your wife can get online, can download all these apps and start meeting people. Most gay men are going to react negatively to someone saying they're just looking for a gay friend. That The most important criteria for my next friend is that he is a man who puts dicks in his mouth, there's going to be a turnoff for most gay men. Just like getting out there in the world and saying, I have come here to make a black friend. I only, I want a black friend. Will you be my black friend? That's not going to go over very well with most black people. We want to be friends with people that we have things in common with, that we have a good rapport with, that we enjoy spending time with, not friends with people who like some sort of scud missile honed in on us because we're cocksuckers. Any more than somebody wants to be friends with somebody because they're being tokenized for their race. Or their faith. I want a Muslim friend. That's not going to go over well with anyone. What your wife needs to do is get out there in the world and meet people and make friends. And there are gay people out there in the world. And if she meets enough people and makes enough friends, some of her friends or friends of her friends will be gay. 
So get on the apps, leave the house, go places, do things. You will meet all sorts of different kinds of people. And I promise you some of those people that your wife meets will be the kinds of male people who put other male people's dicks in their mouths. Good luck. Hi, this is a comment for the guy who called in on episode 582 and was asking about asking permission to kiss. And then you said you have young children and you assume that you'll need to teach them about consent. You can be teaching them about consent literally their entire lives. When they're little kids, you can be teaching them about consent like it has to do with the other kids that they're playing with at playground or preschool or whatever. Is it okay if I have that truck? Would you like to share your cookies? Would you like to share my cookies? It's not okay to touch other people's bodies. It's not okay to poke them or pull their pigtails or whatever. And you can be teaching your kids about consent as it has to do with their body, that aunt whoever doesn't get to just grab them and hug them and kiss them whether they want to or not, that if they have some other relative who has bad breath, that person doesn't get to be in their space. You can teach them with consent about their permission to put them in their high chair, in their car seat. That sometimes, yeah, there's non-negotiables. They have to get in the car seat. They have to ride safely. You have to go where you're going. But that to the extent that you can show your respect for their body, you're teaching them about consent. It's not like it just starts when they turn 14 or 15 and then you tell them, oh, don't touch a girl or don't touch a boy or whatever, unless they say it's okay. Teach them continuously how important it is that people have agency and the right to their body and to say no. And that includes that your own children have the right to say no. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about episode 582 where the dad is worried about how to educate his sons because he was told that nothing is unsexy as asking a woman for consent. In my personal dating experience, the only time I was turned off by a guy asking if he could kiss me is when I didn't want to kiss him. Asking me if he could kiss me wasn't what turned me off. I wasn't into it before he even asked. And yes, it was awkward at the moment, but so much better than if he had just gone for it and I had to dodge his face or even worse, put up with an unwanted kiss. Hi, Dan. This is a comment for the woman in episode 582 whose husband is considering getting a Prince Albert piercing. You and I must have had different experiences because I had sex with one guy ever that had a Prince Albert and I thought it hurt like a bitch. So I don't think that's the case for everybody. I mean that you said it, it doesn't hurt. You can't even feel it. I know I certainly could. That was one of the only one night stands I've ever had in my life. And to be quite honest, I don't even remember his name anymore because that's how far I wanted to leave that behind. Cause I was like, Nope, never again. Ouch. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Luke Burbank on Twitter at Luke Burbank. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and 2018. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.